This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. You may be seated and go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 2. I believe it's um, page 567 in your pew books, pew Bibles. Uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, but Isaiah chapter 2, as uh, Father Matt said at the beginning of the service, this is the second week in a series on Isaiah. We'll be preaching through Isaiah this summer. If you were involved at any point in theater or a musical group or a sports team, you know that experience of working together, rehearsing, practicing, um, individually but also as a group, towards a goal. And as you're doing that, you always have in mind this day that's approaching, whether it's the day of the recital or the day of the play or the day of the concert or the day of the big game. And you know that, that rehearsal or practice or that, that getting ready is so important because the more you rehearse, the better you feel about that day as it comes. If you're lacking in, in rehearsal or practice, you feel nervous, you feel unprepared when the recital or the concert or the game comes. Um, if any of you were involved in musicals in high school, I'm sure I'm not the only one who had this experience of the first time we're running through this whole thing straight through from beginning to end is opening night. That's a little unnerving. It's a little unsettling. You, you feel a little unprepared. We like to rehearse. We like to practice. The more times we run through a scene, the better we feel about it when the night of the show actually comes. Isaiah is prophesying and looking forward to a coming day. Look now in chapter 2, first verse 12, and then we'll look at verse 11. Verse 12, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. Now bump up to verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone shall be exalted on that day. So Isaiah is talking about the day of the Lord. This is a concept that you'll find elsewhere in Isaiah and elsewhere throughout the prophets. For the prophets, the day of the Lord meant any day that was a day of reckoning, a time when God would draw near for judgment to cleanse away wickedness, a wicked nation or the wicked people within a nation, and he would hit the refresh button. He would level the playing field. He would reset the scales. That day of reckoning was the day of the Lord. And many of the prophets were prophesying to the people, saying, that day is coming and it's coming soon. So an example of this in history and in the scriptures would be when the Babylonian army sent by the Lord actually destroyed the holy city of Jerusalem and the temple upon which he had placed his name. But the Lord permitted that. He actually raised up the army to do that because of the wickedness of his people. And prophets like Isaiah and especially Jeremiah were prophesying towards that day. So that day of the Lord in 586 B.C. is one of many examples of a day of reckoning. But there are other parts of the prophets, other parts of the Bible, and especially the New Testament, that talks about a final day of the Lord, a coming day of the Lord, capital D, that will be the day of the Lord like none other before it. We call it the day of judgment. The Bible teaches that Jesus will return, the same Jesus who walked 
in Galilee and Judea, healing, casting out demons, was crucified, the same Jesus who was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, that man will come back to this earth in our history. And that day will be the day of the Lord. And the Bible teaches that Jesus on that day will separate the wicked from the righteous. The Bible teaches that Jesus on that day will separate those who trusted in him and sought to do right from those who didn't. This final day of the Lord will also be the hinge point of history so that all that is now in the age that we are living in that is passing will cross over that hinge point into the age that is eternal, the age that is coming. The day of the Lord, capital D, is that hinge point. And in Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching about that, and he says it will involve a final separation into eternal punishment for some, what we call hell, eternal life for others, what we call heaven. But Jesus is not the only one who teaches about this reality in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in First and Second Thessalonians talks about these realities as well. So in First Thessalonians 4, Paul teaches that the Lord himself shall descend with a cry and the sound of the trumpet with the voice of an archangel. The dead will rise, and all who are still living and in the Lord will rise with the dead in the air. They will be together with the Lord. And then he says this, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's one way that he describes heaven is the presence of the Lord living in relationship and love with him forever. That's 1 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul once again speaks about this coming day of the Lord. He speaks about it from the other angle. He says, on that day, it will also be a day of wrath. The wrath of God poured out on those who do not know God and refuse to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says they will suffer eternal punishment away from the Lord. So take note, it's eternal. It is punishment, which means it is painful. This is how the Bible describes and begins to give us a picture of that reality called hell. But note that he says heaven is the presence of the Lord. Hell is being away from the Lord. But Paul, Jesus, all throughout the New Testament, they, along with Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets, are pointing to this day of the Lord that is coming. So something bigger than your spring concert something bigger than your senior play is on the horizon. Isaiah chapter 2 fills out the picture a little bit more for us and tells us what that day will be like. And it does not tell us explicitly how to prepare for that day. But if we read Isaiah closely, Isaiah chapter 2, we will see in it everything we need to know how do we prepare ourselves for that day. So back to theater. I did a few shows in high school. And because of that, one of my recurring stress dreams is that it's the, it's the night of the play, and I'm, I'm all got up in my makeup and my costume, but as I'm on the stage, everybody's interacting with me as if I'm one of the other characters than the one that I actually played. And in the dream, I'm thinking, this is so embarrassing. I, I don't know these lines. I mean, I kind of do, but I don't really. It's really, I hate that dream. Or imagine if you were walking into a theater 
And as the person is handing you the ticket for the show, you're coming to see a play, but they say, oh, and by the way, you're not in the audience tonight. You're in the starring role. Even those of you who love theater and did theater, that would be terrifying to you. You'd feel totally unprepared, and that would not be any fun. Jesus talked about this in one of our classic Advent readings. So we read this every Advent where Jesus says, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day, notice he uses the language of day, that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake, Jesus says, at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus says the day of the Lord will catch some people unprepared. Which brings us to a very important question this morning. Is it possible ahead of time to prepare ourselves for the day of the Lord? And if so, how do we do it? Can we prepare for this coming day? Again, Isaiah chapter 2 gives us some really important clues. So let's read again. We'll re we read this before. Let's read it again. Verse 12. The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. Now, bump over to verse 17, which is a repeat, same themes, a lot of similar language to verse 11, which we read earlier. Verse 17, the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So Isaiah is giving us a clue. He's saying, on that day, the Lord alone shall be exalted, but, and, we can prepare for that day by humbling ourselves even now. In other words, when the Lord lays low the lofty pride of man on that coming day, we will be prepared for that moment if before that we've been practicing and rehearsing laying low our own lofty pride, humbling ourselves before the Lord. So like with a play or a recital or a concert, we can rehearse. We can get ready now in this time by humbling ourselves and exalting the Lord. We can practice the day of judgment like you might practice a scene in a play so that when the day of the play comes, you're ready. When the day of the Lord comes, you've rehearsed it. You're not, come, you're not caught unawares. So every day in prayer and worship, we humble ourselves. Every Sunday, we pray prayers. There's one of them that's even called the prayer of what? Humble access. So we do this. It's part of our spirituality, an important part. And it's good to remind us in a tough text like this that the good news is if you choose to humble yourself now, you will not be forcibly humbled on that day. Rather, being humble on that day, it'll be second nature to you. Like an actress who thoroughly knows her lines, or a concert soloist who has so memorized the music that he or she feels one with the music. You've rehearsed it. So on that day, the day of the Lord, you'll know what to do because you've been doing it already, every day now, before then. 
So we'll come back to this question of how do we prepare for the day of the Lord? How is it that we humble ourselves? But first I want to take a little jaunt to the side, something that's a little bit related but not completely, but important that we find in our text here. Uh, Look now at verse 4. He, the Lord, shall judge. Yes, when we talk about the day of the Lord, you can't talk about a day of reckoning without having the sense of judgment. You can't have judgment and it not be the day of the Lord. These concepts go together. But I, I would wonder if I just say the word judge or judgment and you just hear it, is that going to be a negative thing or a positive thing for you? Most of us receive those words, and we have negative associations with the words judge or judgment. So let's, let's talk about this. Because actually what this text shows us and what the whole witness of Scripture tells us is that Jesus being the righteous judge is not a negative thing. In fact, it is the fulfillment and the yearning of the desires of our hearts. Because this text tells us it is a righteous judge who inhabits a kingdom of peace, not of war. The righteous judge of Isaiah 2 is the leader of that kind of kingdom that you and everyone wants to be a part of. Let's take a look at these first verses of chapter 2, starting at verse 2. In these verses, Isaiah is depicting a picture of what is that kingdom that is ruled by the judge king, the Messiah, who is all-powerful and all-righteous. It shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all the mountains and lifted above all the hills. This is a metaphor, a figure of speech saying, this mountain from which the judge king of Israel, who sits and reigns at Zion, ruling all the nations, This mountain lifted over all the mountains of the earth means his power will be unassailable. His power will be greater than all the other powers of the earth. No one will be able to conquer him. Verse 3, well, end of verse 2, the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come, and they'll say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this judge king is also a teacher. And he teaches the peoples of the earth the ways of peace and righteousness that they might walk in them. And what's the result of this judge judging? Look at verse 4. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples, and the result shall be they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So the presence of a righteous, all-powerful judge king actually leads to peace. And the swords, the instrument of warfare, become plows, the instruments of agriculture, and spears which pierce flesh and bone for the shedding of human blood and the flow of blood. Now those spears are turned into pruning hooks, the harvesting of grapes for the flow of wine. That which caused sadness is now being used to cause joy because of the presence of the righteous judge. 
So if ever Judgment Day or Jesus being judged is an uncomfortable thing or you, you, you'd like to ignore that or you feel embarrassed of those parts of the, of the Scripture that you want your unbelieving friends not to know about, we have to keep this in mind, that this is what the righteous judge leads. This is what judgment leads to, peace and not war. Deep down, you and everybody you know yearns for a righteous judge. And it says that he shall decide disputes, and we might say he decides those disputes indisputably. What he says, it is. Once he makes a ruling and a judgment, no one can gainsay it, no one can overturn it, and we long for that. We long for a judge who's not only righteous, but also irrefutable. We need both. Because if you have a judge who is only righteous but not all-powerful, well, then he might be well-intentioned. But what good will it do? How have you longed, as you've watched the news and listened to what's going on in Ukraine, how you've longed for someone to rise up and just put a stop to it? Everyone agrees that the war in Ukraine is unjust, unprovoked. It's an act of aggression. But the nations of the earth are afraid to do anything about it beyond sending weapons and sanctions. Now, I'm not criticizing that choice. I don't know what I would do if I were a leader in the nations of the world. But I'm saying the reason they feel that that's the most they can do is because they fear retaliation from Russia with a nuclear arsenal. They're not all-powerful. The nations of the earth are not all-powerful. It's why they can't actually stop the war in Ukraine. Even though when you hear about it, you're burning with anger and you want somebody to. Or you could probably think of a situation in your life in the last month, in the last year, where it feels like everything around you is crazy and you're looking around your shoulder. When will the grown-ups step into the room? When will somebody who's powerful and able but also deeply good step into the room and stop this madness? Or I remember to bring it down a little bit more to scale. Uh, when I painted several years ago, there were three Polish guys who were part of our crew. And they did not come over as children, they actually emigrated as grown men, as adults. And I asked them one time, what brought you to America? And they said, well, one thing is that in Poland, we would often work and not get paid. You could do a job and the owner of the house would say, I don't have the money or I'm just not gonna pay you. And the process of going to a judge and, and getting it all worked out was more trouble than it was worth. It just didn't work. They just had a society where you might work for a week or two not knowing if you were going to get paid or not. Can you imagine that? And so they came to America and they said, this is great. Every time we do a job, we get paid. And so you imagine yourself in that situation. You've just worked for a week or two. You've just spent a week or two of your life and someone there is saying, I'm not going to pay you. What do you want in that moment? You want a righteous judge who's good, but also has the power to say, no, you must pay. So again, whenever we get skittish about Jesus being a judge or the judgment day, let's keep in mind that deep down, you and everybody you know yearns for a kingdom that is ruled by a righteous judge king. All right, so back from that aside to the main question from today. How do we prepare for the day of the Lord? How do we prepare for the coming judgment? Because, yeah, it doesn't take a holy person to recognize 
as soon as that judgment gets turned on me, I'm going to have some things to repent of. As a pastor, I've worked with conflicts. It's hardly ever 50-50, but also it's never 100-0, hardly ever. There's always something that I have to own. And when the righteous judge turns his judgment upon me, I will have some repenting to do. And Isaiah, in verse 5, he's pleading with the rest of the Israelites. He's saying, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, because Isaiah knows that is not what the Israelites are currently doing. And he's warning them. He's saying, look, this beautiful vision from verses 2 to 4 of the peaceable kingdom. Let's walk in that. Let's walk in the law of God. Let us learn righteousness from his good and perfect law. Let us humble ourselves now. Let's change our lives now. This plea to repentance. Because if we don't humble ourselves now, Isaiah is saying, we will be humbled then on the day of the Lord. And so verse 5, it's a plea for repentance. Verse 6, and the whole rest of this chapter, and all of chapter 3, even into chapter 4, is Isaiah describing more of what the day of the Lord will be which you've heard me read already. The lofty pride of man shall be made lo laid low. The Lord alone exalted in that day. Also, furthermore, Isaiah describes it. Look at verse 10. Enter into the rock, hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, from before the splendor of his majesty. Pop over to verse 19. People shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And finally, verse 21, the people will enter caves of the rocks and clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord, the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. So as Isaiah describes the day of the Lord further, he says, it will be unquestionable that the Lord is beautiful that he's powerful, that he's majestic, but that majesty and that beauty and that power, it will be overwhelming and it will cause people to be terrified and to look for holes in the ground to hide under. Now, everyone? I would say, no, not everyone. To be sure, everyone will stand in awe of the Lord on that day, but not everyone will be in terror on that day. Those who have now rehearsed and practiced that day and that scene, knowing that it is coming, will be ready for that day. Those who have humbled themselves, who have already experienced what it means to tremble before the presence of the Lord, will not be in terror on that day. You will not be searching for the rocks to be covering you and the holes of the ground to be covering you. I think of Mary's song, the Magnificat, where she uh, uh, spins together all of these themes, and she gives hope to the lowly. She says, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. He who is mighty has done great things for me, the lowly one. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud. Similar language to Isaiah 2, do you hear that? He's scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. The Bible repeatedly teaches 
that those who are poor, that those who have lowly circumstances in their life have a head start. It's more likely, it's easier for them to get this and understand this. Now, being poor, there's no automatic virtue in being poor. John Chrysostom, who was a bishop of Constantinople in the fourth of his century, who was famous for excoriating the wealthy royalty of the capital city to which he preached, yet he also, even he said, well, sure, the poor man can sin too. A poor man can greed and lust after money just as much as the rich man. The difference is the poor man doesn't have any, but he's still lusting after it. Okay, so there's no automatic virtue in being poor, but the reason the Bible tells us that the poor have a special insight into spiritual matters is precisely what we're talking about here. Their humble circumstances make it more likely, if not automatic, at least more likely, to recognize their need, to put their hope in God and trust Him rather than unrighteous wealth for their security. The poor are more likely to long for a kingdom that is described in the Scriptures as an abundant feast. On the other hand, those who are used to feasting in this life, for whom that's no special or amazing thing, are less likely to recognize the goodness of that promise and the goodness of the kingdom. They're less likely to desire it. So when the Lord comes to terrify the earth, all will stand in awe, but those who've already learned to tremble at the presence of the Lord, there will be no terror for them on that day. All throughout this passage, the words lofty, proud, lifted up, are paired with humbled, brought low. They occur in almost every verse. At the end, Isaiah has this kind of litany, a poetic litany of oaks and uh, trees and hills and mountains and man-made things such as defenses and forts and towers and the great ships going on the sea, everything that his audience could think of as being great and strong and awesome. It's a poetic way for Isaiah to say, all of these things will be laid low on that day. So Isaiah is saying, come, let us put our trust in the Lord and, and not in these other things, not in the things that look strong and mighty to us now. He's saying, let us do this today, let us do this now, and I say to you the same. Before the day of judgment comes, let us rehearse and practice that day, the great and awesome day when the Lord is revealed in his glory and splendor and majesty. For the Lord alone will be exalted on that day, and the pride of man shall be laid low. However, we can prepare for that day by even now humbling ourselves before the Lord. And as we come to finish today, what I want to do is give you one small, practicable, that is to say practical way to do this. There are many ways to humble yourself before the Lord and to live a life humbly before the Lord. Let me give you just one to try this week, and I really mean I want everyone here, young and old, if you're physically able, to do this. At least once this week, if not every day, every day would be great, but at least once this week, I want you to go into a room where no one else is, close the door, and for even just three minutes, I want you to bow down before the Lord. And I mean literally. I want you to get on your knees, and press your forehead to the ground like this. 
and just remained there for three minutes. As Anglicans, we're no stranger to how our body impacts our heart and our soul and our mind. We get that these things are intertwined, which is great. You may be asking, how do I humble myself before the Lord? Well, you can do it with your body. Kneel before the Lord. Remain in that posture. If you've never done that before, I'm excited for you to find out what happens in that moment. And yes, of course, I hope that that becomes a regular practice of how you pray. The two best postures for prayer are standing and kneeling. Sitting is acceptable. It's okay. I sit and pray sometimes. <laughs> but it's, it's, not, it's not primary. Primary is standing or kneeling. And if you have difficulty praying, change your body posture. See what happens. All right, we're all going to do that this week. You promise me? Amen. At least once? Awesome. And as you do that, of course, you can pray prayers fitting of that posture. You can say, Lord, show me all that is proud and lifted up in me and remove it. You can also simply exalt the Lord and say, Lord, you alone are God. You alone are worthy to be exalted. You alone are exalted in my life. Or you can simply be in silence before the Lord. So the Bible clearly teaches a day of judgment is coming in which all the pride of men will be laid low. But on that day, there will be no cause for fear for those who have rehearsed and practiced for that day, for those who have learned to humble themselves before the majesty of God now. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.